happy 2016, everyone. All right, now, I, I know that is the appropriate response, but who just wants to go to bed, y you know? Why does every New Year feel like that? Guys, I, I want to teach you a cool passage here today, all right? Repeat this after me, okay? There is one body, and one spirit, and one spirit. Just, as you were to one hope, just as you were called to one hope, when you were called, when you were called. One, Lord. one Lord, one faith, one, faith. one baptism, one, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. All right, man, you do that like 10 more times, you'll have it down, okay? That passage right there, okay, this passage is what Paul is about, okay? Did you hear a number come up in that passage over and over again? One, one and all. All are one, one for all. The three musketeers were on to something, okay? This passage drives Paul. Now, Last September, we started going through the Bible through the eyes of an early follower of Jesus named Paul. And the reason why we did this is because, guys, I, um, I, I, I never cease to be amazed at how God speaks through this book. God is a God who transforms lives. And the way that God comes to us and speaks to us and begins that process in our lives is through the words he has to say, the message he wants to communicate. And there is no better, cleaner, purer place that you will find it than here in this book. And so what I wanted to help you do is know this better. Because I think if you know this better and understand this better, you're going to understand where God is taking you more and more. And this guy named Paul, he wrote half of what we call the New Testament. 27 letters, he wrote 13 of them. That makes him important, right? But it's more than that. Because Paul is really the first follower of Jesus to work out, at least in writing, how God's great story or narrative all fits together, how the Old Testament and the New Testament all fit together as a cohesive whole to show us the full story of what God is about. And that makes Paul more important. And if you've ever tried reading the guy, he like, well, as we've said before, he swims at the deep end of the pool, okay? He, he comes across very theological, Let's be honest, very confusing, very where are you taking me, very at times it seems tangent upon tangent upon tangent, and oh wait, I forgot about this, right? And I think because of that, he becomes easy to dismiss, or because of that, it's easy to think of him as an ivory tower intellectual, smart, but out of touch. But that passage I just had you repeat, there is one body. All right, you can do better than that. There is one body, right? One Lord, one faith to which you were called, one baptism, right? One God and Father who is over all, and through all, and in all. My gosh, the passion just exuding from you right now as you say this, it's... It's overwhelming to me. 
That's what drives Paul. See, this guy, Paul, for as uh, big of a brainiac as he was, he was actually a pastor at heart. He was a missionary at heart. And Paul was driven more by people than ideas. And it's this idea of this, this one body, one faith, one baptism, one group where we become one that drove his life, his work, and his ministry. And to miss that is to miss the heart of what Paul and so much of the Bible is about. Now, there is a word that sums up that entire passage that I just gave you today. So if you don't want to memorize like all 37 of those words, you can memorize one. But it may be more difficult because it's in Greek, okay? And here it is. It's pronounced koinonia. Give me that, koinonia. Got it, good job. Koinonia, how do you describe it? Well, we've already said in a long way. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and in all and through all. But another way might be like this. Community, life together, the gathering, or straight up, guys, my favorite translation of this that I've seen, the fellowship of faith. See, what Paul is driven by as a pastor and missionary is this thing that the New Testament will call the fellowship of faith. A fellowship that that includes all believers, no matter who they are, that goes beyond the walls of this little local fellowship of faith across geographic lines and cultural lines and even timelines, extending out, making us as what God calls one. Because the logic is something like this. For Paul, being in Christ is everything. You want to boil Paul down, it's this. Be in Christ. Because when you're in Christ, you find hope. You find salvation. You find forgiveness. You find meaning. You find purpose. You find direction. You find all these kinds of things. Wisdom and illumination. They'll go on and on if you let him. All right? But see, here's the thing. If I'm in Christ and you're in Christ, and you're in Christ, and yeah, you're in Christ too, right? If, if we're all in Christ, then like it or not, we are all in Christ together. So figuring out how to do life together becomes core to what Paul is about and what drives his letters and what I want to share some more with you today. Because in Paul's economy, there isn't so much of a me and Jesus idea as there is a we and Jesus idea. And let's be straight up, being one is tough stuff. What I'd like to do today is show you a passage, and it lays out some of this foundational idea of koinonia, what it means to be in life not only with God, but with each other. Because from the Bible's point of view, the two are absolutely inseparable. And by looking at that, 
seeing how God wants to grow us and develop us and build us into being all that God has called us to be. So what I invite you to do is pull out a Bible under the chairs and dig in and follow along with this. I find it's easier to look at it for yourself. Ephesians 4 is where we're going to turn. And by following along, I think it sticks better. And let's see what Paul has to say about this thing called the fellowship of faith. Now, he begins in Ephesians 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. See that? So Paul is in prison. Yes, Paul is a jailbird. And he's writing from jail. Question, if you were in jail, would you be writing letters to churches? Me neither. But this is what drives Paul's life work, and ministry. He's in jail. He's like, I urge you, brothers and sisters, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you received. And that sentence there will overshadow everything else he has to say. What does that look like? To live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Well, he begins. He says, be completely humble. Gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why? Repeat it with me. Because there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Because you are one, like it or not, because you are one, Paul says, live this way, gentle, humble, patient, bearing with one another and making every effort to keep the unity of peace. And you know why? Why those and not like 25 other things he could say? Because despite the fact that we're one, we're not, right? We're not. I mean, let's take the classic example of marriage, right? Like, what is every married couple read or told? The two become one, right? Yeah, you're kidding me, right? Have you ever been there, those of you who are married? Really? This is your definition? This is oneness? Oh my gosh, what does two look like if that's one? Because oneness does not come easily. And oneness does not come naturally. And I think we in the church, we who are Christians are especially guilty of deceiving not only ourselves, but other people when we pipe passages like this about how we're one, when in reality, it ain't the case. Because when different people with different backgrounds and different values and different issues come together, oneness does not come Easily. Married folk, are you with me? Church folk, are you with me? So how do you make oneness happen when it doesn't come naturally? Be humble. How humble? Completely 
humble. You know how lousy that is? Man, it sucks. You ever just want to take an exacto knife to the Bible? <laughs> Be completely humble, right? After that fool has done it again and again, you're watching the road of their life lead to destruction. You're like, are you kidding me? Be humble. You might know better. Be humble. You might have a different way. Be humble because you're no better than they are. And while that might not be your issue, I guarantee they have to bear with yours as well. So be gentle. Be patient, though they do it again and again and again and bear with each other in love. How do you find unity when unity doesn't exist? You just put up with them. You bear with them, Paul says. Not out of resentment, not out of, not of some kind of coercion or manipulation, but out of love. You bear with them because you know they are a child of God and you are a child of God too. And if unity could happen, there is something amazing on the horizon that it is worth struggling for because you're one. It might not seem like it, you're one. It might not feel like it, you're one. You might not even want it. You're one in Christ. So if we're one in Christ, let's discover what oneness can really be. And this is what drives Paul in this letter to the Ephesians. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, overall, in all, and through all. Are you with me? Now, despite the fact that we're one, we're different. We are different in so many ways. And one key way that Paul will explore next is in terms of what are called gifts. Follow with me at verse 7. He says, but, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That God's good favor and gifts and grace have been given to each of us in different ways as he has chosen to deal it out. This is why it says in the Psalms, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. God is a God who likes to give gifts. It is the nature and substance and character of who he is, a God who delights in bestowing favor and blessing in gifts upon people. And God has called us together as one, and now as one, he says, God gives us gifts. Now here's my question for you. When you think about gifts, in the context that I've just painted, what kind of examples or things does your mind go to? And I'm really curious, just shout a few out if you're, if you're willing to be like vocal here today. Uh, talent. talent, okay, what else? Talent, what else? <laughs> Money, speaking in tongues, what else? Green lights? All right, yeah, I'll take it, green lights, all right, all right. What else? A blur of something, okay, what else? It, intellect. intellect, 
teaching, leadership, mercy. Right? You can go through the spiritual gifts of the Bible. You can go to the tangible things that he gives you in this world. What's interesting to me is where Paul goes next. He says, God has given gifts. Christ has given gifts, has given grace, as he's chosen to apportion it. And then if you're looking at verse 9 and 10, he goes on a tangent into parenthetical stuff. Read the Go Deeper sheet. It's confusing. All right, we'll just go back there later. What are the gifts he gave? Well, if you look at verse 11, it says this. It was he who gave, well, some to be apostles, prophets, right, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Straight up, is that what you think of when you think of God's gifts? But this is what Paul says the gifts are that Christ brings, which is really cool for me because that means I'm a gift. (laughs) Merry Christmas, everyone. I am here. The fact that I'm a gift is something that I try to remind my wife and kids of almost on a daily basis basis, and uh, you could really bat for me in a big way today. Go on their Facebook page sometime today and just, just overflow with thankfulness about how wonderful a blessing it is that God has put a gift like me in their lives. Would you post that on their pages for me? It's very odd that what Paul does is he shifts to this idea that these people, we'll just call them leaders of the church, are gifts. My gosh, it's like, if that's your idea of a gift, Lord, Really? Yeah, the gift that keeps on giving, huh? Um, But he says, these are gifts. But if you keep reading gifts for a very specific purpose, to prepare God's people. What is the gift for? To prepare God's people. To prepare people. God's people. To prepare you. Have you ever in one way or another in your life asked God, prayed to God, or maybe just hoped in some kind of way that God would give you what you needed to get through something, to face something, to figure something out, to discern what's true and what's not, where he might be? You ever been, I've been in those places What's absolutely frightening to me is what, what, what Ephesians seems to say is leaders of the church are gifts to you for that purpose, to prepare you. And it strikes me how backwards most of what we call church can easily turn into if we're not careful. Because doesn't this kind of turn everything on its head? See, my experience is that most people... Think of church leaders as the ones that God has chosen and selected to do works of service, to do the work of the church. But that's not how Paul sees it. Paul sees church leaders as one whom God has given to prepare you to do the work of the koinonia to prepare you, which means that what we do when we gather here should be less about getting fed, inspired, and happy and more about getting prepared and trained and equipped 
It's kind of like when God gives church leaders, what he's giving is everyone a gym membership for the year, right? You ever, has anyone ever, like, ever done that to you, given you like a gym membership or home health equipment? And you're like, how do I read this? Like, you, know, you start looking down and it's like, uh, gee, thanks, right? You've just given me how many hours of agony? Welcome to the gift giver called God. That he gives these people called leaders of the church to prepare and equip you to do the work of the koinonia, to do works of service. And here's the reason why. Because when that happens, something incredible occurs. The body of Christ has a chance of being built up. That without this equation, the body of Christ goes nowhere. And you are the body of Christ, which means you go nowhere. To be built up is to plug in to the schema that God has laid out here, which means you have a vital role to play. Each of you. I don't know your past. You have a vital role to play. I don't know your limitations. You have a vital role to play. I know some of you might be saying to yourself right now, God says you have a vital role to play. The koinonia itself depends on it. It is what the way of Christ looks like, and it is crucial and key to being built up, to developing and maturing and growing in to the very person and people that God wants you to be. Now, in a few verses, Paul is going to start unpacking this. He's going to start unpacking some of these ideas and metaphors of what it means to be built up. And and he does it by framing it in two ways. Two of what I call um, the two most horrible creatures on on planet Earth. All right? The first is this. If you read, he says in 4.11 or 12 or 13 or wherever we are. Verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Try to say that in one breath. What does he say? There are deceitful, scheming, Crafty people in this world. And I'm sorry, every time I say crafty, I think of like Michaels or something like that. You you, you know? Ooh, those crafty people. (laughs) But I think what Ephesians wants us to think of is a different kind of craftiness. And it's a craftiness that goes back to the beginning. There was an animal that was called crafty, craftier than all the other animals that God created. You know what this animal is? The snake, the serpent, you can find it in Genesis 3. I think what Paul is getting at is this. There's snakes in the world. Who here likes snakes? Who here would, like, who who here hates snakes? 
right? All right. Who here has ever given the gift of a snake? I'm just curious. All right. There's snakes in this world, and some are venomous. Some are downright dangerous. There are snakes in this world. There was a snake in the beginning that sought to strike the people of God, and there are snakes in this world today that seek to do the same, to bite you, to poison you, to kill you. There are those in this world that will seek to destroy you. And even when they're not venomous, you still don't want one in your crawl space, do you? Right? We don't want snakes. And when this happens, he says, we will no longer be victim to snakes. But there's another creature in this world that Paul gets at, and you probably missed it while we were reading along. Do you know the only thing worse than snakes? Babies. No. Babies. Now, baby spiders might be the worst, all right? No, seriously, is there any creature worse in this, this universe than a baby? You know, whiny, snidely, snotty, pants-loaded, sniveling, needy, demanding, obnoxious creatures that God calls a gift, right? You know what the point of babies are? To grow up and no longer be babies. Amen? Yeah, someone's shaking their head no in the back. No, it is. I, I... <laughs> babies. You know the only thing worse than babies? Adults who act like them. Right? Have you ever seen Billy Madison? Is there any worse creature in this world than a full-grown human who is a baby? Because all of us got to start somewhere, and God bless our parents, they put up with us. But the point is not to stay a baby. Would you agree? It is to mature. It is to grow. It is to develop. Because babies by nature are vulnerable. Babies by nature are gullible. Babies by nature are unable to handle the things of this world. And what Paul says is when leaders do their job, and people respond. We are babies no longer. Look at the passage again. What does he write? When this happens, verse 13, we become mature, attaining to the whole measure. The whole measure. Do you want the whole measure? of what God has to give. Then be mature. Become mature. Attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We will no longer be infants. Hallelujah. Tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every cunning teaching. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things, here it is, grow up. Grow up into who? And to him, and who is he? The head, 
Jesus Christ. See, what Paul does here is he takes this infant idea, this, this, this body idea, but he goes at it in a very physical, kind of like human being kind of way. He says, we are one, just like my body is one, though it is made up of different parts. And in this body, this human body by analogy that we all form, Christ is the head. Now, have you ever seen a baby? Do you know what is distinctive of babies in every species of animal? Their heads are way too big. <laughs> right? I mean, have you ever, have you ever like, actually seen this, right? Look at a baby and go, that, that is one big head. <laughs> right? Because somehow and in some way, as God set the development of the human being in progress, the head grows faster. The head is bigger. The head has to hold the brain. It's something like, like a baby's head is going to be like almost full size or something by the time they're a year old or some ridiculousness like that. Um, that's probably exaggerated, but not by much, right? It's cute when you're three months old. It ain't cute when you're 42, all right? Have you ever seen grown-ups with two big of heads? Here's a classic example, Right? <laughs> Right? It's just not balanced. Have you ever looked in a magazine and went, wow, that is a handsome man? <laughs> if only I could look like that someday. No, because when we're infants, our heads are too big. Christ is the head. And what does Paul say? Part of what it means to develop as a believer, part of what it means to develop as a koinonia is to grow up into a body that matches the head. I went on a Google search these last few days looking for animals with oversized heads. This is the best example I found. You know this thing? It's called a blobfish. It apparently lives down like those volcanic trenches like 5,000 feet below sea level or something like this. And you know what struck me about this oversized, overheaded creature? It ain't happy about it. (laughs) Not one bit. Do you know what a church, a koinonia, looks like that doesn't grow up? And Jesus is the head, and he doesn't look too happy about it, right? Jesus says, grow up into me. My head's pretty big. Christ's head is big. Grow up into it. Develop into it. Mature into it, or as he puts at the back end of this, because verse 16, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as, as church leaders do the work, as each part does its work. A body part that has never worked, atrophies. It shrinks and withers and dies. Do the work of the church.
grow, develop, build up, mature. This is Paul's driving concern to every fellowship of faith, including this one here in McHenry. And that's my prayer for us this coming year. You know, I reflect back on 2015. We had a cool year, guys. Some pretty cool, amazing things have developed here. And things that I've seen develop in so many of you. When things grow, there's growing pains to be sure. But you see what God is growing you up to. And we're not done yet. What God is developing among you. It's the beginning, or as he puts in another letter, he who began a good work in you, in us, will bring it to completion. And for Paul, that's what koinonia is about. Go after it this year. All right, that's all I got. So, um, let's rise, all right? And uh, I believe man's going to start coming forward. We're going to commune today. It's such an odd mix of metaphors, isn't it, that, that Jesus takes bread and wine and he says, come take my body. He says to his body, come take my body, right? But that's what we get to do today because Christ is our head and he's good and he's wise and he's strong and he invites us to be a part of him together. And that's what we celebrate here today. One hope, one faith, one body, one baptism, one God and Father over all, in all and through all. Would you pray with me? Prepare our hearts. Prepare our minds and prepare our bodies, Lord. for the growth and development and maturity that you seek to, to make happen in us. Bind us together as one. You've called us one. In unity, God, it seems is key to maturity. If we are here today and we have issues with a brother or a sister, convict our hearts to make it right and to reconcile it, to strive for peace and forgiveness. If we're here today, God, and we've isolated ourselves, separated in some way from the oneness that you've called us to experience, forgive us, we pray. And work in the hearts of those involved to find unity and peace again. Forgive us, God, for the times that we break fellowship with you. Forgive us for the times that we break fellowship with one another. Forgive us, God, for the times that we don't even recognize it. Here within this body, 
or within the great worldwide eternal body of believers stretching across space and time. Bind us together as one. Speaking the truth in love. Practicing humbleness and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another as you have done so amazingly with us. So hear this today, God, hear our confession, take our sins, and I invite you to pray this together with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. But for the sake of your son, Jesus the Christ, have mercy on us, forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And I don't know what fissures you bring here today in, in relationships with brokenness in your life with God or with others. But I think of this passage that, that, that Paul has to say in Galatians 3. Nevertheless, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. All of you in Christ are sons, and God loves his sons. So all of you were baptized, immersed into Christ, and have clothed yourself with Christ. He's upon you, and you are in him. doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek. Slave, free, male, female. You are all one. And if you belong to him, you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to his promise. When your brokenness is threatened, when your oneness is broken or threatened, when your oneness is shattered, when your oneness is strained, clothe yourself in him. And let his healing and restoration and mercy reign. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body. It's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took a cup. He gave thanks. He gave it to them. He said, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood of a new covenant. It's shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. All of them. But come. Come and take part in this in me. Koinonia, fellowship of faith. Welcome to the table of the Lord.